Hello and welcome to the LAR Radio Hour, brought to you by Reader Supported, LA Review of Books. I'm your host, Eric Newman, the Gender and Sexuality Editor at LARB, and I'm joined in the studio today by LARB Managing Editor, Medea Ocher. Hey, Medea. Hi, Eric. Today we've got a conversation with Mitchell S. Jackson about his forthcoming book, Survival Math, Notes on an All-American Family, which will be published by Scribner in March. I really enjoyed this conversation with Mitchell. I mean, the book, I should say to readers... It's at times like difficult, you know, Mitchell had a very difficult life. And so some of the passages in the book and parts of the book are difficult, but always incredibly beautifully written and really speak to a kind of enduring spirit that I think carried me through the entire manuscript. Yeah, it is a really beautiful book. And I'm excited to have Mitchell on the show, particularly because I wanted to have him on after his novel came out, The Residue Years, which I believe was a few years ago. And so it was a pleasure to get to talk to him today about this book. So the book is called Survival Math. It's a memoir plus yeah, memoir, historical record. reportage. And then there's poetry in there as well, plus centos. photography. Yeah, I only recently learned what a cento was. Oh. It was lucky that I learned before this conversation. Can you tell our listeners what a cento I am, is? I'm going to tell our listeners. A cento is a poem that is made out of other texts. So it is a, essentially a collage poem mm. that is put together with sentences from other documents, which is what the poems in this book are. Oh. So all the poems in Survival Math are Centos. C-E-N-T-O-S. It is going to be on the quiz next week. <laughs> all right. Sounds good. So before we have to go to our study session, let's get to that conversation. Let's do it. We're excited to have Mitchell S. Jackson with us today. Mitchell is a New York-based writer and author of the award-winning debut novel, The Residue Years. He joins us today to talk about his latest book, Survival Math, Notes on an All-American Family, which will be released by Scribner in March. The book charts Mitchell's life growing up in Portland, Oregon, his move to New York, and his developing career as a writer. Moving back and forth across timelines, Survival Math is a forthright and moving account of overcoming adversity and a touching memorial to all of the folks whose lives and struggles intersected with Mitchell's, lives that are still with him in the present. Welcome to the show, Mitchell. Hi, thank you. I'm wondering, just because the book has a really distinctive voice, which I want to talk about in a minute, but I was wondering if you can give our listeners just a sense of it by reading us a selection. Sure. I'm going to read from Fast 10, Slow 20. It starts off, Unk, where art thou? What the fuck we gonna do now? That was the question top of mind that summer of 93. A summer we, the we being me and my brother who, again, out of love, I'm calling Brother A. We're the newest alumni of Jefferson High School, known as the School of Champions, and so it seemed at the time, a school of fledgling dope dealers. What we gonna do? The most attractive answer was make some loot, make some major loot if we could, and with that goal in mind, we got in our hands on a few ounces of powder, or what we hoped was powder cocaine, since as neophyte squared, neither of us could be sure it was. Neither of us knew how to cook it either, which was no low hurdle. We needed a tutor. Needed a tutor quick, fast, with a hurry up. But our options were hella finite because both of us were sans the Rolodex of dudes who knew how to chef. Because directory or not, 
we couldn't just call up any dude because we needed somebody who wasn't an outright competitor, whom we believed we could trust, who was down for a tutorial, and who wouldn't tax our light pockets too tough for the tutelage. We mused candidates. We resolved our safest bet was to recruit one of our kids, and who better, or so we believed, than Uncle Henry. Uncle Henry, our ex-pimp, ex-drug kingpin of an elder. Uncle Henry, who had long ago fallen from the glories of his stateside Hank days, had a legend that remained aloft in our impressionable minds. Again, no pseudonym for my uncle, and trust me when I tell you, he prefers it that way. Thank you so much. That's really beautiful. Thank you. Can we just talk about that voice? Because there's a movement, and sometimes there's actually clearly a movement between prose and poetry. But I also feel like there's something about the general voice of the book that I find quite compelling that as it moves between, say, like poetry and prose, it also moves between what feels like an overheard conversation and mm-hmm. then also something that's kind of more direct to the reader address. And I just wonder mm-hmm. how you found that particular kind of voice. I think kind of experimenting with different modes of communication happened in residue, where there were like meta elements in residue. So this right. feels very much an extension of that. There's also a lot of reportage in it, but also... I didn't want the historical passages or the reporting to sound like the third-person objective, so I was also really careful to, I guess, infuse that narrative or the exposition with voice. I'm just one of those people that believe if you can't tell that I wrote it, like, I'm doing myself a disservice. And so I try to figure out a way to present my identity in all of the sentences. When I got the book, when I saw the galley, I knew your novel and was a fan of it. Mm. And I couldn't quite tell what this book was just by looking at it. And then when I started reading it, it really surprised me almost at every turn because to give listeners an idea, the prologue is a letter. So it gives you the sense of, oh, this is an epistolary book. And it's a letter to the first black man who came to... Oregon, yeah. Oregon, that's right. And so there is this really interesting mix right off the bat of historical reportage, as you say, and -hmm. also your own personal history. And then it goes deeper into your own personal history and then sort of back out again into your family and other forms of sort of historical context. So there's Mm -hmm. this zooming back and forth between this larger narrative of the place the people, et cetera, and then the smaller narrative of you and you as a child. How do you balance that kind of, because it can be very destabilizing, I think, for potentially a reader, but it's not at all here. It feels natural. It feels very smooth. How do you balance that when you're working on something like this? Well, one of the things is I always start with the personal. All of these essays are framed with some kind of anecdote, whether it's me or a member of my family. But then after that, there's an idea, and then I ask myself, do I have an anecdote or a vignette that connects to that idea? And then after that, I'm really just trying to contextualize whatever my idea is. And that might mean going back to the Civil War. It might mean going back to Europe. It might mean looking at some obscure law. So it was really just me going, okay, if I think this thing, where did this kind of present 
phenomenon began. And that was, I guess maybe it was like, I didn't know that I was going to have to explore so much that was outside of the world that I was initially kind of interested in writing about. But it was a journey that taught me a lot, and I'm happy that I did it. Mitchell, if we can go back to that prologue. So you're addressing Marcus, which, as we said, is the first black man ever to step foot in Oregon and who died Mm -hmm. in 1788. You are born in 1976? Five. Five. I was close. Yeah. Okay. So in in 1975. (laughs) And one of the things that I love about the prologue is that it effectively traces the fate of African-Americans, of black folks who are struggling Mm -hmm. to survive in a particular part of the United States and struggling to survive the terror of white supremacy over centuries and marking this movement from slavery to freedom, from the KKK to the racial politics of contemporary Portland. And I'm wondering a little bit how you see the sweep of that history. Is that something that we call progress? Is it stasis? Is it a change without changing? How do you frame that, and how do you see your relationship to Marcus, who you address in the prologue? I like those options that you laid out. Uh, (laughs) Stasis and change without change appeal most to me. You know, people come to Portland, and you look around, and not even if you look around, I mean, if you actually look at the numbers, like, there's no diversity in Portland. We make up 2-3% of the population, and because I grew up in the small black community, I didn't know how white Portland was until I actually read about it years later when I was an adult. But now, knowing is, is what I know about the history of Portland, like there's no coincidence that that is the case. They set this in the groundwork of their constitution, and they have maintained that for centuries now. So I don't want to say that there is no... I think there's as much progress in the kind of racial politics or milieu of Portland as there is in the racial politics of America at large, which is Mm. to say not much. So one of the things that I wanted to do is give listeners an idea of how the book is structured formally. You have these parts where you talk about your own past, these essayistic parts, and then there's something that in the book and within the context of the book is called survival files. Could you talk a little bit about what they are and how they made it into this book? The essay Survival Math was one of the very first essays that I wrote. So that was there. I was already thinking about this idea of survival. And then around the time, probably 2015, when I was revising and also really upset about the high-profile police murders, I wanted to speak to what was happening, but I also didn't want to be of the moment because I felt like there were enough people that were saying intelligent things about it. So I wanted to process it. And so I married my concern with the beginning of the Black Lives Matter movement with also my relationship to survival and the things that were happening to me in Portland. And I thought, oh, well, if it's happened to me, it must have happened to some other men. And so I decided that I would interview men in my family and see what kind of things that they survived. And sure enough, they had survived things that I had. Some of them, I just had no clue that they had gone through that. But all of them make up the survivor files in the book. So the same men are on the cover are the ones in the book. But the thing is, I also wanted to give them a certain sense of anonymity. So I never connect a story to a person. And the other thing was I wanted to give the reader access as much as I could to the experiences that might be distant from their personal experience. So I used the second person. 
So that was kind of like how the evolution of those came. But then there's also what are centos in the book, too. And I took the cento poem as a poem composed of lines from other poems or other documents. And so later in the process of revising, I knew I wanted to frame these kind of personal stories with more historical context. So I went and chose, I think it was 10 different documents and pulled lines from there to make the cento poem. So to me, the survival files, even though they're not next to each other in the book, are the centos and the images and then the second-person narratives of my family members. What was it like talking to family members and getting these stories? Were they very forthcoming? Did it seem like they trusted you with these stories? I mean, I think all of them were really forthcoming with me. I mean, most of them I have. I mean, they're all my family, but I have varying degrees of closeness to them. But, you know, with my brothers, like, we all have really intimate relationships. And some of these, at least one or two of them, like, I was actually present and remember them happening. But there's one man that I interviewed who was my biological uncle, my father's brother, who we only found out that he was related to us a few months before I did the interview. And the moment that I did the interview was the first day I met him. So it was interesting that he would share that kind of information with me. And then also we're basically strangers, but still connected by blood. How did you find out that he was your uncle? My aunt. I have an aunt and a cousin that are like the family historians. And so we get a new cousin or something every uh, (laughs) year or two. We get a new cousin. You are listening to the LARB Radio Hour, recorded at KPFK Studios in sunny Studio City. We've been speaking with Mitchell S. Jackson, author of Survival Math, Notes on an All-American Family. We will return to that conversation in just a moment, but first, we have this week's book recommendation. We're thrilled to have author Wayatu Moore with us back in the studio. Wayatu is the author of She Would Be King, and she's here to give us this week's book recommendation. So Wayatu, what book are you recommending? I recommend The Lazarus Effect by Hawa Golakai. She is a Liberian writer. The Lazarus Effect was published on the continent by Cassava Republic, which is a Nigerian-based publishing company. If you're interested in Liberian literature, or if She Would Be King has piqued your interest in Liberian literature, I'd recommend Hawa Golakai. And can you give us a little sense of the plot of the novel? It is a thriller, and a lot of Hawa's books, it, it actually also includes speculative fiction as well. And it is a story. I'll just say that. I'll say it's a thriller. It's a mystery. All right. And can you give us the author and title one more time? The Lazarus Effect by Hawa Golokai. Thank you so much. That's been a book recommendation by Waya Tumor, author of She Would Be King. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. You are listening to the LARB Radio Hour. We now return to our conversation with Mitchell S. Jackson, author of Survival Math, Notes on an All-American Family. On a related note, actually, one of the things that I loved about the book, I mean, there's many things that I love about the book, but one of the things that I kept coming back to is these uh, portraits, which I think is actually early on in the book, of your, mm-hmm. um, what you call your composite fathers or your kind yeah. of composite pops. And mm-hmm. there's something 
about that that I find, I mean, I'm very interested in like thinking about family as like something that is, especially as I get older, family that is something far beyond like the biological, like the people that nurture you, that bring you up, that help you, you know, that provide, I mean, actual nourishment, spiritual nourishment, those kinds of things. Um, And, you know, there's in particular, I think I really... Uh, resonate with this story that you have about Big Chris, um, which is this mm-hmm. he's your mother's longtime boyfriend. Um, yeah. He comes into the picture, you're already born um, and he basically takes you in as effectively as if you were his own blood relative and Absolutely. that you learn from him as well as from other uncles and, and other men, this kind of evolving sense of your own masculine, you know, what it means to be a man, what it means to, mm-hmm. to face adversity, to um, overcome challenges, to own those challenges, and to own your own will to overcome them. So mm-hmm. I'm just wondering if you can, I just thought that whole section is quite beautiful, because I, I think that we oftentimes limit ourselves to thinking about, say, take, for in this case, like the image of the father can only be one type of guy, when really, if all of us are honest, we have many, many fathers. So if you can just talk about what these kind of composite fathers meant for you, and also how you interface that with your own experience as a dad. Uh, you know, it's interesting. I was just home last week, uh, or maybe it was two weeks ago, and one of my old friends, this is actually a guy I was in prison with, um, he had texted me a couple of days. And he didn't know I was coming home. So when I got there, I was like, you know, I know he texted me, like, let's meet up. When I went to go meet him, he was like, man, you know, I don't know my father. He's 51. Mm-hmm. He's like, I don't know my father, and it's really messing with me, and I want to figure out, you know, how I can help because I know there are so many men like me who don't have their fathers, and I think this is, like, such an epidemic, and I want to figure out how I can help. You know, one of the things I I, I talked to him about was, like, figuring out a way to either maybe documentary, but the first thing I said was, like, maybe you should do, like, some kind of mentorship. I said that to say that, like, it's so much of a necessity, right? It's like some people make composite fathers or or family members because they don't have another option. Like, there is no parent there to do it. And so I, I wanted to... But then also people always look at it as like, well, it's that dirt is going to like consign you to a life that is in some way less than. And in many cases it does, but I think that there's a way to kind of, you know, you, 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 you confront these obstacles and you figure out a way to work around them. Yeah. And in some cases it turns out that like it was even more um, enriching than you thought it would be. Um, and I didn't even realize that I was, I didn't realize I was making composites until much, much later. But, you know, these are, these are men who I still go back to, still ask for advice. Um, and, and they all gave me something different too. That's the thing. Like, I think with your father, like you, you know, you, when you get older, you realize your father's limitations. You really, you realize mm-hmm. their strength and their limitations, mm-hmm. right? And so I think, and in some cases, like, you might be apprehensive about pursuing a, another kind of fatherly um, relationship. But I think I was, because I had that, I didn't have that figure going up, that I was, like, less apprehensive about, like, finding what I needed elsewhere. You know, I never thought about my son needing a composite figure, which is, like, I've ne- mm. and I'm glad that you asked that question, because I think that 
he does need that. Like there are things that, you know, that someone else could teach him that I wouldn't be able to teach him. Right, I think it like would, we all it have might limits. hurt me a little bit. Yeah. If he was like, that's my dad, number two. But I do think like finding the kind of composite to like fill in where where I lack is uh, would be a benefit to him. So one of the things this is sort of coming off of this idea of the composite is that part of the story here is about making a life out of various parts, right? And, and sort of putting it together as best you can. So one of the things mm-hmm. that comes up over and over again and, and use this metaphor in the book is a marriage between your mother and drugs. Oh, yeah. And that's sort of a composite marriage in some, in some sense. The, the memory mm-hmm. that you initially have of how that's initiated is, is a little wrong, and, but you're, you're putting things together sort of as, as the book goes mm-hmm. along. Could you share that story with listeners about yourself as a, as a child and how you related with your mother's drug use? Well, I should say it's a weakness of, of my writing that my memory is not that great or that I have a, an imagination that takes over what actually happened, and that was the case for, I was trying to pinpoint, like, when did my mother start using drugs and my recognition of that. And I imagined that I was with her, probably imagined it because I, was, I wrote that as a scene in residue mm-hmm. and then conflated that with what actually happened. And then we didn't get clarification on that until I was, you know, 40 years old and we were working on a documentary and she actually told me, told me the story of that. But along the way, years into my mother's addiction, like I, I knew that I needed to figure out a way to make, not make peace with it, but to like not let it overcome me. And so a part of what I kind of arrived at was this idea that my mother was like committed to this, this, her addiction. And, uh, I mean, it, I, I imagine it gave me some kind of solace, even though I still struggled, um, off and on with it, but it, but it, but it was also something that I think was helpful for my brothers, where I was trying to like make sense of it for them because I'm the oldest, and I really ended up playing like a, a father figure role. So it was like I had to figure out something that was going to get me through, so I could pass it down to my brothers. Yeah. Wait. When you say that you wouldn't want to, or you wouldn't let it overcome you, when you picture it overcoming you, what do you picture? Uh, addiction for myself. Mm-hmm. Just a long, long bitterness, like uh, giving up in school, like a lot of the things that happen to, you know, people who have parents who struggle with addiction. I mean, I did sell drugs, so in that in that way, you know, it, I mean, I'm not going to directly connect me selling drugs to my mother's addiction, but there was, I think, I don't know if I would have done that or did it for the length of time that I did or been as committed as I was to it if she didn't struggle mm, um, interesting yeah why I don't do know you... if I heard that beep nope oh no it was good well now that you say that what do you think would compel you to keep selling while your mother was using like as a as a form of some kind of connection with her and with her experience no. money money yeah <laughs> I mean yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean just the, you know wanting to wanting I mean, it's not just money it is the things that you it's the kind of confidence that I gained. It was also the ability that, uh, or thinking that I could fix 
whatever problem it was. So, like, if the problem this month was no food and the lights are off, I can fix that. I mm-hmm. might not be able to, like, track my mom down, but I can make sure these things are done. So yeah. I think that that was really the the main motivation after a certain point. After, you know, I bought my sneakers and stuff, which was, like, very early on, it was like, okay, I'm going to take on the father figure role for my brothers, and this is one way that I'm going to do it. Another way is to, like, model me staying in school. Another way is for me to show up at their basketball games. Another way is for me to, like, make sure they're doing their homework. But this is also one of the ways in which I'm I'm going to be responsible for them. That that's That is a lot for a young person to take on. Yeah, but I'm not the only dude doing that. That's, yeah. like, pretty regular. Yeah. <laughs> I think one of the things that comes across in your writing is that you're writing a personal story, but you're also writing a story that's personal to so many other people, right? That yeah. it's it's not just, in this sense, it's not just your story. And in some ways, I am interested in hearing about what writing has meant to you, like what it means to you to have a voice and to give representation um, to a particular experience, to a place, to a kind of an affect world or or a feeling that mm-hmm. that others share, but that often goes misrepresented. Yeah, I mean it's, I mean it's 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 heartening. It makes me feel like I have a, a purpose. Mm. Uh, I mean, I floated around with with someone else's purpose for a very long time, thinking I was going to be a basketball player, then I was going to be a newscaster for a minute. And, you know, I don't know what else I would have done, but I think that this really, I figured, I, I, I didn't realize that I had a talent. And then once I figured out that I could marry a work ethic to what I discovered was a talent. And then also, I think like, um, you know, I was reading, uh, I think it's James Weldon Johnson. And he was, he, uh, there's an essay of his where he was saying that a people I forgot the exact quote, but it's like a people who make great art cannot be subjugated as less than, uh, which is kind of like, you know, the Enlightenment people, like there's no clearer evidence of like thinking than than writing. Um, so to me, this is also not only a, a chance to tell a story, but to impress upon someone else, like the way that my mind works. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that particularly, like, you know, there's a there's a kind of feeling that I wanted to create with residue, and in survival math, I want you to reckon with my mind at work. Actually, you know, when you th- when you say reckon with my mind at work, how do you imagine a reader doing that? Like, there's so you know, um, there's so many ways that a person can interact with a book like this, particularly, I mean, formally and in, in, in a lot of different ways in which you can go back and just reread the survival files if you wanted to. Um, mm-hmm. Or take in those images and just focus on that. If um, yeah. you know, they're, because they're, we should say to listeners, they're really beautiful photographs yeah. that are that appear on the cover, but also appear on the interior of the book. What would you say is when you think of a reader interacting with your mind at work? Mm-hmm. What do you think about? I think of them. Well, I think I, I hope that they're interacting with the ideas you know, kind of sifting them through their own experience and their sense of history, sense of culture, seeing where they're positioned in relationship to them. I also hope that they try to apprehend the structure 
of the book and and why uh, the parts are arranged as such. I, I I would love for them to interrogate the the centos and see if they recognize where those lines came from and how they frame uh, the stories that follow them. I hope they read that long ass footnote I have in the back uh, <laughs> on whiteness. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so those are just a few ways. Yeah. <laughs> um, to kind of wrap up a little bit, and mm-hmm. and maybe on this this theme of hope, you know, as Medea's talking to you, and and as you're explaining kind of how it is that your mind works, I mean, one of those things is the associative, right? That you draw from these kind of deep pools of history, and you find the way that history kind of um, uh, penetrates into the present, right? The, uh, yeah. To use the, the word too, the residue, right? Like that's what the thing that accretes and is always there with us, even in changed form or altered form. Um, mm-hmm. So one of the things that I, I just in closing to kind of ask you about is where do you find across like all of that history, right? All of the associations and the connections that you show us, like where do you see hope and where do you see the thing that, you know, powers you, mm-hmm. powers the readers, powers all of us forward? Uh, hopeful. I mean, if we look at the history of African-American lit, right? Like, to have a, a canon of African American literature from a group of people who were forbade to write, to yeah. read, it's phenomenal. I was just reading an essay about um, Phyllis Wheatley's um, collection of poems, and they were so good that they disbelieved that she wrote them. They called on like eight August Bostonians to uh, quiz her to verify that she had actually wrote the poems. And so I think that in this several hundred years now into the African-American canon, if you look at poetry, I think that we're definitely in a renaissance of poetry. I think that, you know, some of the most critically acclaimed and important writers of our time time in prose are African-American. So I think that, to me, that's hopeful because one of the things I, I haven't given my, the book to my brother but I was going to give it to him last week, and I had already imagined the uh, the epigraph that I was going to write, and it was going to be, they don't know we was here. And I think, to me, that's important, and that, to me, is like the whole breadth of the African-American canon is we left a record of our trials, our struggles, but also our triumphs. Um, so to me, that's, that's the hopeful thing, is that, like, no matter whether the things are going our way or they aren't going our way, like we can leave a record of it, and it's uh, and, and we're making art. I mean, not everyone's making art, but I think you know some people are really turning their their trials into to, to beautiful artifacts. Right, the testament, right, yeah. the thing, that, yeah. the thing that endures. Yep. Well, that, really I think beautiful. that seems like a perfect place to end this yeah. interview. Yeah, I thank you so much, Mitchell. This has been really, really wonderful speaking with you. All right, thank you. We've been speaking with Mitchell S. Jackson, author of Survival Math, Notes on an All-American Family. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to the LARB Radio Hour. Subscribe to our podcast in iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. If you like the show, leave us a comment and tell us what you think. The LARP Radio Hour's executive producers are Eric Newman, Medea Ocher, and Kate Wolf. Our engineer is William Broughton. 
Production assistance is provided by William Broughton, Eleanor Duke, Lauren Kinney, and Jake Levins. Our theme song is by composer Imogen Teasley. Special thanks to Alan Minsky, who is no one's moral conscience, for production assistance, and to Emerson College for the use of their studio in Hollywood. Tom Lutz is the publisher and editor-in-chief of the Los Angeles Review of Books. 